Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. All right, we're going to continue in our service now. We'll have plenty of time to catch up over a coffee or a tea after the service. We're going to spend a moment praying now. And uh, there is a prayer that Jesus has given us from Matthew chapter 6 that this prayer is going to be modeled on. So if there's anything from here that you like, have a look at Matthew chapter 6 and see how Jesus taught us to pray. So let's spend some time praying together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in heaven that you are sovereign and in control over all things. God, you are holy and set apart, and there is no one like you. And we thank you that when our world seems to be falling apart, you are still in control, and you are still our Father in heaven. God, your kingdom come. We pray that your rule would be seen here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would give us today our daily bread that you would provide for us our needs as we see them today. Father, we know our temptation is to be worried about tomorrow, but we pray that you would give us confidence that you have got us today. Lord, we remember how you care for the lilies in the field and the birds of the air, how you provide for them. We remember how a sparrow doesn't even die without you knowing it. And so we take comfort in the fact that we are of more value than they. So, Father, give us confidence that today you will provide for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, we know that as we gather together this morning, that there are things that we have done in the past week or the past few hours even, that we know we haven't been living up to the standard that you have set for us. God, we know that times we don't even live up to our own standards. And so, Father, as we come before you now this morning, we ask that you would forgive us. God, we pray that you would take away our sins and the things that we've done wrong, the good things we haven't done, and that we would know that we can come before you forgiven. We pray that this would transform how we care for others, and we pray that you would help us to forgive those who have wronged us as well. God, as we think about it right now, for many of us this morning, maybe we can think of people who we have grievances against, and we pray that you would give us the grace to forgive them. Father, we pray that you would give us the help to forgive them, knowing that the grace that we want from you is the grace that we need to show to them, and so we pray for help in this. We pray for help to forgive us and to help us forgive others. And Father, we pray as we move into the rest of our lives that you would lead us not into temptation, but Lord, to keep us aware that the evil one wants to pull us away from you and from what is good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would protect us and look after us and help us. God, give us the grace in all this. And we pray this not because we deserve it, but because you are a good giver of good gifts. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read the Bible now uh, as we continue in our series, Meals with Jesus. And today we get to 
the la- uh, not the last meal, but one of the last meals called the Last Supper. So we're in Luke chapter 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. So you can follow along in your Bibles or it will be behind me on the screen. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room, upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been declared, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute arose, also arose among them. Sorry, a dispute arose also among them to which of them was considered to uh, to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you uh, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. We sang a song earlier that God would open our eyes to see him clearly, and we do expect that when we meet together as a church family, that God would speak to us and show himself to us. I'm going to pray now that God would meet with us this morning and reveal himself. Let's pray. Dear Father God, just thank you for this opportunity to gather here. We thank you that we can do it with freedom, without masks, without restrictions, and just to be able to sit and listen to you. So we wait in anticipation, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. Let your spirit meet us. Open our eyes, Lord, so we might see you clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to start a discussion and escalate it into a fight. It's easy to ask the question about parenting. What's your ideas on parenting? What's your style? I've seen this come up, not even deliberately on Facebook, where somebody refers to how they discipline their children, and then somebody else will reply, well, actually, I think discipline's really harsh and cruel and unloving. I take a loving approach, because I want to love my kids. The other side of the fence goes, well, actually, I think not disciplining your children is unloving. So there's this feud comes up, and I'm glad it's on Facebook, because I'm imagining these people getting really worked up with fists clenched about what is the best parenting. Now, it's not just about parenting, because I think it's about this idea of justice and punishment and discipline on the one side feels contradictory to love. 
and caring and compassion, it feels like they're opposite. It feels like they can't fit together. So we take one side and go, no, this is the approach I want to take and this is the approach this person wants to take and they, they can't seem to meet in the middle. I remember even growing up, if my dad was around, be careful, because my dad was a disciplinary. He was the one to dish out the punishment if something was wrong. But if you wanted a hug, you'd go to my mum. She was always open with a hug. And it felt like they were very different things. They didn't come together in the one person. Now, not trying to start a discussion about parenting or anything like that. Growth groups will be fun this week if we did that. But I think it builds this tension when we try and understand what God is like. God calls himself, there's God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's three persons in one. That's what is God like? Is God the God of justice, the God of punishment, the God who corrects things when they're wrong? Or is God all loving? That a loving God could never punish because love wins all the time. Love's not like that. What is God like? When we try and work out from scripture and our own minds, how do you picture God? Because they do call him God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. What is God like? Well, the best way to know what God is like is actually through his son. That's why we have the Gospels. That's why we're looking at stories like the one we have today, because Jesus actually shows what God is like. And this dinner is a classic meal where Jesus is using this opportunity as a teaching point. He's going to teach people what God is like, not just in theory, but in actions. So this story clarifies that big question is God a God of judgment or is he God of love? Now, as we get into this story, we need to understand the setting because as we heard read for us, uh, it's a Passover time that's introduced. I'm just going to go back a few verses from where we picked it up in the story. Uh, it's the start of chapter 22. It says, Now at the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover, it was approaching. So what that means in is, uh, it, so this is first century Roman Empire, We've got this tradition in Jerusalem for all the Jews, all Israel, for years and years and years, about 1,300 years, they've been celebrating this Passover meal. It's a festival and it's a religious pilgrimage. So in Jerusalem, uh, they say it swelled to about a million, as in a million visitors coming to Jerusalem at that time. Families would do their once a year trek, if not the families, uh, the head of the households, the dads would come as a representation of the family into Jerusalem. It was a busy time. It was a festival, it's a party atmosphere, lots of things going on. You had to find accommodation, you had to find how you're going to get your meals, you had to work out all these logistics because this was a busy place, the, the, the Passover time. And it's time for preparation for the Passover. Now, what we're going to see is Jesus is not the only one preparing for his meal. Jesus is going to host a meal. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But there's other people making preparations in this Passover festival as well. I'll just read it for you. This Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, so the religious guys, were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Jesus had been giving them a hard time. So they wanted to kill him. So they were afraid of the people because Jesus was getting some following. So they wanted an opportunity to take him out. Then Satan entered Judas, 
called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched out for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Who's organized? Who's preparing for this Passover festival? It's the religious leaders that don't like Jesus. Jesus is confronting them with many things they don't like. Satan is a part of this planning that's coming together. And Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, they're preparing for this Passover festival very differently to everybody else. They want to take Jesus out. That's in the background. But there's other preparations going on. Everybody's preparing for this meal. And we hear Jesus. This is where we picked up the story. Verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread, on which a Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, that's a part of the festival of sacrificing the lamb, Jesus sent Peter and John, making around, look, go, go to the village, find this guy carrying water, follow him, to, he's not the owner of the house, go to the owner of the house and ask him about where's the room to be set up and then he'll let you go and set up. And these guys go in, they find everything just as Jesus said. They not only find a room, because you'd imagine all the rooms are booked because everybody's wanted to hold their Passover meals. Not only do they find a room, but coincidentally, they find the guy carrying the jar of water the exact time Jesus said, you know, when you walk in the gate, this, you'll see this guy. It's not meet this guy at this spot and he'll show you. It just seems like bizarre coincidence that Jesus' plan is working out because it is just as they found it. Everything was right. Or Jesus actually knows what's going on because he's God, that he'd uh, prepared it in these people, this owner's house to know what's going on. Coincident, no coincidence that they meet this guy that's going to take him. The message is for these few verses, Jesus knows what's going on. It's very clear. Jesus has prepared this. Uh, and the disciples are a bit surprised at how well Jesus has, has got this all in, in place. You've got to ask the question then, does Jesus really know what's going on? Because if somebody wanted to kill you, wouldn't the last thing you want to do is be preparing a meal, be hosting a meal? This is Jesus' meal for his disciples. If somebody was wanting to, to come and seek you out, to pull you away, wouldn't you be like leaving town? The last thing you want to do is say, hey, I'm going to have a party. But yet, this is what Jesus is doing, which raises a lot of questions. Why is Jesus proceeding with hosting a dinner when people are out to kill him? The answer goes on as this dinner unfolds, because then they come to the time where the dinner starts, and we're told the hour had come, uh, dinner party started, Jesus and his apostles are reclining at the table, and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Very interesting uh, the way it's worded here in our English. It's eagerly desired. Uh, sometimes when we want to emphasise something uh, like how much I desire something, we might use the word <coughs> that we really desire it. And when we want to emphasise something, we go, we really, really want to des desire it. It's, we, we repeat that really, really word to emphasise something. In the Greek and in some other languages, they don't, they don't use the word really, really like we do. They repeat the word to add emphasis. So what Jesus is actually saying in the original language, you might translate it literally, 
with desire I've desired to have this with you. The word desire there is mentioned twice, like really, really desired. It's to emphasise that I've really, really anticipated this meal, looked forward to this meal. I've really wanted to have this meal with you. He's looked forward to it for a long time. A couple of years ago, I had a 50th birthday. Actually, it wasn't just one birthday. I had a birthday week and I had six parties on my birthday because I wanted lots of people there. I wanted to talk to them. But the thing with a birthday party, a a feast, a celebration, is not just, hey, look at all the the years of friendship we've had in the past, but if you celebrate a birthday, it's in in anticipation that we're going to have years of friendship into the future. It's just a milestone with your friends in the past and in the future, looking towards good times. But for Jesus, he's not looking towards good times. He's desired to have this meal. Why? He's going to explain it. He actually says, Rather than celebrating good times ahead, I've eagerly desired or I've desired to desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm not celebrating this for the good times to come. I am going to suffer. He knows he's going to suffer. He goes on to say, For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. This is my last meal. This kingdom of God that he's talking about is heaven. It's like... Well, how do you have a meal in heaven? Well, you die first, you die and go to heaven. So it's like, this is my last meal with you and I'm not going to eat again until I'm in heaven. He actually repeats it a second time. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this cup, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is in heaven. He's not going to drink till then. This is his last supper. He's making clear. He actually knows what's going on. He actually knows people are after him. The big point, it's like even knowing this stuff, that he will suffer, he will be killed, this is his last meal, Jesus knows it. He knows that first six verses that we looked at. He knows that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are after him. He knows Satan is after him. He knows Judas is after him. Later on, we're not going to pull up the verses, but later on in verse 22, actually it was read out for us, he alludes to Judas coming to betray him. He knows that's going to happen. In fact, Jesus has been talking about this for a while. Back in chapter 18, about four chapters before this, Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to be arrested. I am going to be beaten, flogged and spat on and killed. They were in shock. They didn't know what to say. In fact, Peter says, no, no, I'm going to do everything I can to stop that. You're right with me. It's like Jesus knows this is happening. But doesn't it raise the question even more so? If he knows it's happening, why is he having a celebration meal? Why is he desiring to desire this meal with them? Like he's looking forward to this meal. Why is he not only eagerly going through with this, but he's, he's willingly going through with this? It just feels a little bit, what is going on here? The answer is found in the Passover meal itself. It is a special occasion and there's uh, lots of parts to this meal that, that give it meaning. And so we're going to just spend a few minutes just recounting what, what this Passover meal is all about. See, the original Passover, 1,300 years before, with, uh, when Israel was in slavery to Egypt and Moses came along as God's man to save them, 
This is what everybody in Jerusalem has been celebrating for 1,300 years. Even now, when these guys are hosting their dinner, other people are remembering what happened 1,300 years ago. Because it was back then that Israel, God's people, were enslaved to Egypt to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. God's like sending Moses in, let my people go so they can live a life to worship me. And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not. So at that time, God rules a judgment over Egypt, a punishment. I'm going to punish everyone here for their sin and rebellion. That is, Egypt have pretty much given God the finger, said, we're, not, we're going to ignore you. You're not, not a part of us. And Israel, they even start questioning Moses. It's like, Moses, you're making life hard for us. Would you just go away and leave us alone? At least, at least in slavery, we're not being killed. So both parties weren't trusting God. So God says, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to send the angel of death over Israel, over all households. And the punishment for sin, that is not trusting God, not obeying God, is death. And this is going to play out with the death of the eldest son in each household. Now, it kind of sounds harsh. In fact, when you think about it, it is harsh. The eldest son will die because of people's rebellion against God. And the way the story is told back in Deuteronomy, it's like they're screaming through the night as people realise the death, that sin equals death. And the son is dying for the sins of the household, taking the punishment. But as the angel of death went over the city, God said, hey, in an act of grace and mercy and love, he says, I'm going to allow a substitute for your elder son. If you take a lamb, a lamb, white and fluffy and innocent, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to sacrifice the lamb and catch its blood. And I want you to capture the blood and sprinkle it over the doorpost of your household. And whoever's in that household will be safe. Because as the angel of death comes across, it will see there's already death in that household. Not to the eldest son, not to anybody else, but just to the lamb. But that's a sufficient sacrifice. It's a swap. The lamb is a substitute. So as the angel of death went across, everybody was safe if he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorstep. So what that meant is tragedy for some. I mean, you think about what it would be like if some sort of plague or anything, an angel of death come through and wiped out the eldest son in every household, your eldest child in every household. That's tragedy. And I think we need to feel the weight of that. It's horrific, you might say. It's horrific that that would happen. But yet, on that one night would change the history for Israel forever. On that one night was tragedy for some if they did not trust God. But for others who trusted God, who trusted in the Lamb, who trusted in the sacrifice, that was the first day of freedom. They had generations of slavery, but after that night, Pharaoh's like, I'm not fighting this God, you guys go. So Israel were allowed to walk out and eventually lead into the promised land to a life of prosperity. That was a great night for them because it liberated them. It gave them freedom, the sacrifice of the lamb and the judgment of God. So this is what they were celebrating. God said, now, <clears throat> this is a big moment in the history of Israel. I saved you guys. So get together every year. Remember the story. Sin equals death. 
God's judgment. But God prepares a way out. God prepares an exchange, the lamb. So every Passover, they sacrifice the lamb to remember what God had done in that night, that one moment. So people died, which was upsetting, but people were given freedom and life. And that one night would change the history for Israel forever. Now, they would retell that story every time they got together for the Passover meal. So when Jesus sits down to share the Passover meal with his disciples, we're not exactly told did he go through the whole story, but he uses each of the, the pieces of the story to explain what was going on then to look back but also look forward. So they had bread. The bread and the wine were a big part of this, this meal. So he goes on to explain, he takes the bread and the bread was a reminder, the bread wasn't that nice, it's not your best bread, uh, it's flat and dry. But he says, this is what the bread used to be like in slavery and remember, this is the bread you took out when you went to freedom. It's a memory thing, remember that bread. But now he's saying, he takes the bread, he gives thanks to God, he breaks it and gave it to them saying, this is not looking back anymore he's looking forward this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me that bread that's to remind you of slavery and freedom now i'm giving you life freedom from slavery in the same way he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you so associating the, the blood of the lamb and the cup and the drink to go, we remember the blood of the lamb as we drink the cup, but now we're looking forward. This is going to be my blood that is shed for you. You see what's going on here? He says, I am the lamb. Actually, you might even notice in this Passover meal, there, there's to be a lamb that's, that's killed and prepared and eaten in the meal, but we're not told about any lamb at this meal. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the one it's going to give my life to be sacrificed, to have my body broken, to have my blood shed, so you can walk free. I'm the one doing the exchange. You might also notice this word covenant that Jesus uses, uh, that he is um, introducing a new covenant. And that is to say a promise, a promise of God. Now, often when we promise each other things, there's a level of trust. If I promise to do something to you, you've got to trust that I follow through with that to the end. Where Jesus is saying, I'm making a covenant with you, a new covenant, a new promise you might say, but you don't have to wonder, will Jesus be good on his word? Will Jesus do it for us? Because he says, no, no, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do it now. So the promise he makes, he comes through with it right away, so we know we can trust him year after year, generation of generation, because we look back at what he did on the cross with that. He is the, the, the new covenant, shedding, um, bearing this, this promise. Now, in Jesus saying this, it, it is the same message but a different story to the Passover. Same message, there's sacrifice and life, but the details have changed. But I think what he's, he's saying is you need to appreciate the punishment that's gone on in Egypt. The eldest son sons died as a punishment on that household the lamb died as a punishment 
um, to take a punishment that your household deserved. Now, killing a lamb is sad. Killing, having the son die is sad as well. But killing the lamb is not going to pay for your sins, your act of rebellion against God, or my act of rebellion against God. You know, I'm always doing the things that I shouldn't do and not doing the things that God tells me to do. It's like I don't live a life that honours God, so I'm guilty of sin and therefore I fall under his punishment. So a lamb is not going to take that sort of punishment. But God has a better plan. God provides a substitute. God provides an eldest child. His eldest child, his one and only son in Jesus, if you thought what happened in Egypt was confronting, you go to what Jesus is about to do, is confronting even further, because he's completely innocent. He's God. But yet he's going to be killed for our sins. He's, this is the greatest substitute. This is the Father's compassion. That I need to be just. I need to punish sin. Or else it's chaos of the world. There's rebellion. God says, I'm a holy God that will be punished. But in an act of compassion, I'm going to offer my son. So your sons don't have to die. Your lambs aren't going to die. My son is going to die as an act of compassion. Jesus takes God's wrath. Jesus will be killed. Jesus will be the substitute for the disciples at the meal and for all those who believe in him. It's right. It's a good reaction. I remember preaching uh, in a story in Deuteronomy. We did the end of last year and we told this story of the Passover back in Egypt. And it was very upsetting to think that God would lay his punishment and the elder sons would die. Lots of people commented to me, that's very confronting. And we've got to say, it is because the punishment for sin is death. We need to feel the weight of that. It is confronting. But it also means that when God supplies his own son to take that punishment, it's liberating, it's compassion, it's freeing. The weight of sin is death. We can't handle that. A lamb can't handle that. Our sons can't handle that. Jesus takes that death. Now, I know that's very deep this morning, but there's two uh, amazing messages of encouragement and comfort in this. See, what happens on that one night changes history forever. It changes history for those who believe. Just like the, the, the Israelites who are in slavery to Egypt, uh, the Egyptians, went on to have freedom after that one night of God's judgment, after that meal, Jesus goes to the garden, he prays, but then Judas comes along with the soldiers, arrests him, he gets beaten, he gets flogged, and by lunchtime the next day, he's hanging on a cross with nowhere to go but to die. Jesus' blood shed, his body broken, he takes our death. But that one moment, that one day in history, frees us forever. It changes things forever. He takes our sin, he takes our death, so that we can march out into the kingdom of God, into heaven for all eternity. Sure, our bodies will die, but that's not the end. We have eternity in the kingdom of God. How do we know? The covenant, Jesus promised, he's done that death. We can walk free. See, it's Jesus' actions here 
changes the world forever. It's not a promise, I will do this, trust me. No, no, I've done this, you can trust me. Through Jesus' death on the cross. That's why it's so meaningful. So to know that this night will never happen again, Jesus has done it. For those who uh, believe in him and trust him, have nothing to fear. The second message of encouragement is around the question, why did Jesus desire to desire this meal so much? Why was he eagerly anticipating this? It's because it's the greatest act of love, the greatest act of love that he was desiring to, to do. It's no surprise what was happening for Jesus. He knew, he was knew he was going to take on the weight of death. It even says, Luke tells us the story, when he goes to the garden later, before he gets arrested, he's praying so intensely to his Father God that he's dripping what looks like blood. He knew what was coming. He knew what it was about, but he knew he had to go through that for his friends to live. It's the greatest act of love. You know, every opportunity to run from it, leave town, I know it's coming, but he runs to it not just innocently, but willingly, he runs to it. Jesus' love for the lost was so great. And we've been seeing this week after week in this journey through Luke. He goes out, seeks and saves the lost, the rebels, you know, the cheats, the thieves, the sex workers. He goes and pursues them. Why? At great cost. He willingly does it. He goes out to save them. He doesn't resent it. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. Surely there's somebody else can do this. No, no. He desires to desire that moment. I mean, who would ever love you that much? Who would ever love you that much to actively go and pursue to take the cost to save you? Especially when you know what the disciples are like. We won't have the verses up, but we read a bit further on what happens after Jesus shares what he's about to do for them. What are the disciples doing? They're arguing who's the greatest. You know, who's better than who in the pecking order? Who deserves to sit at the top of the table? Who gets the dregs? They don't get it. This is exactly the thing that Jesus had problems with the Pharisees with. All your religious stuff, you're just trying to make yourself look good. You're not that good. But now his own disciples are doing it. I think that's included there in the story to show them the disciples didn't deserve this. That's comforting for me. So I know I don't deserve it either. But Jesus says, I desire to do this for you. I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to run to it. So that you might have life. So that you might have life eternal. So out of this act, God gives justice. It's hard it's confronting the justice for sin is death, but it's right. But God also shows his love by offering the exchange, the substitute in Jesus, which is amazing and it's comforting. The greatest act of love. And what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to remember by doing the Lord's Supper, what we call it. Not the Passover anymore. We're not remembering that thing, uh, hundreds, uh, like what happened in Egypt. We're remembering what Jesus did on that night through taking the cup of juice, taking a wafer of bread. We're going to look back at what Jesus did. 
we're also going to look forward because what did Jesus say? He not, he's not going to share this meal again until the coming of the kingdom of God. That is heaven. And guess who's going to be there with him at that meal in heaven? All those who believe. All those who trust in him. If you trust in him today, you're going to be at Jesus' next meal in heaven. In the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. We celebrate that fact. So in a sense, we look back and go, God's judgment is harsh. Just like the, the Passover meal said. God's judgment was harsh. But praise God, he supplied a substitute. Praise God that he took the punishment. Praise God that we have life. So we celebrate it. Because we can march into heaven with every confidence. It's the lesson from Egypt. Those who trusted the lamb walked free. But those who didn't trust the lamb suffered God's wrath. Let me encourage you today. If you're here today and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, you're not sure about uh, where you stand with God, I'm asking you today, I'm appealing you today. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. Trust in his mercy, his love, so that you might find life. So you might have assurance that you're right with God, not because of your perfection, but because of what Jesus has done. I'm going to invite you, any, all of us here, if you trust in what Jesus has done on the cross, to participate. So we're going to, in a moment, walk forward and grab the cup. We're going to sit down. We're going to uh, drink and eat together, because that's what we do as a big family. We eat and drink together. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you want to put your trust in him today, I invite you to come forward and grab that. But if you're still thinking about it, I'm not sure, please feel free, sit down. Like don't, don't let us pressure you to do anything you don't want to do. But know the offer is there. Freedom, not because of you, your good works, but what Jesus has done. I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to invite you to participate. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for being so holy and just. We actually uh, are pleased that you are a God of justice. But Lord, it makes your act of love so much greater to know that we can't, we can't stand under the weight of sin and death. But yet your son Jesus took that for us. Thank you for that one moment in history that changed the world forever. Thank you for that one and only thing that could give us life and save us. Thank you that Jesus ran towards it and not ran away from it. That he desired to desire that love, that great act of love, even at great cost. Lord, we fall at the foot of the cross, knowing that we aren't perfect. We've got plenty of things to confess to you in our weaknesses, in our failings. But Lord, thank you that we can confess to them honestly and openly knowing that you will not crush us, but you continue to pour out your love and your mercy on us. That one day you'll lead us into your kingdom, heaven. That we don't have to fear death. That we will be at the, at the meal table with Jesus for eternity. Lord, help us if we have doubts that this news is signed, sealed and delivered, this promise through Jesus. Help us to put our trust in you. Help us, give us the faith, Lord, to trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.